Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi everybody, you are here listening to Living the Dream and you're here with Dave and Bridget Harrelau. How are you Bridget? I'm great thanks, how are you? I'm good, I'm enjoying it. It's a Monday afternoon. Oh man, it's the start of the week and I'm already like, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) But let's not really focus on what's happening with me. Uh, I'm really happy Bridget's agreed to have a chat today because they were recently at um, a pretty exciting conference called Imagining Abolition. Bridget, tell us all about it. Yeah, so it was a conference organised by Sisters Inside and they're an abolition and prison justice organisation that's based in Brisbane. Um, Every two years they have this biennial conference called Imagining Abolition or I think it used to just be called the Sisters Inside Conference but now it's changed and um, this this year's theme was Imagining Abolition, A World Without Prisons. Um, There was a lot of really great international speakers, there were a lot of great local speakers, um, people from different parts of regional Australia, like um, the Strong Grandmothers group from the Central Desert region, um, a group from Victoria in Melbourne, Um, so lots of people from all over the country came to Brisbane to hear the amazing stories and really inspiring work that's being done in prison abolition justice, yeah. You wrote pretty detailed notes which you sent round and I'm only about I think a third through because they're really detailed and they're super fascinating and quite heavy going in some parts as well and the thing that really grabbed me was both like the lived experience and the overall political analysis uh could you tell us like what what were the speak was there a main theme to what the speakers were talking about where their shared experience they were coming from and really like when I hear the title It's kind of mind-blowing. Like, what is prison abolition? Like, what does that really mean? Yeah, I think the whole conference is very grounded in the lived experience of women who have been in prison. Um, And that's just because of how Sisters Inside came about. It was actually founded by Debbie Kilroy, who is an um, ex-prisoner. And when she got out, she just decided that she was going to start something for her friends who were still inside and she was going to go back and create change and she did. Um, so that's the genesis of that organisation that's that's put on this conference. I think comes through and shines through the whole conference because you've just got this really strong basis for which they're actually advocating because they've lived it and they know exactly what prison is like and how it breaks people. Um, and so that's definitely how you know the fundamentals of the conference are based in women with lived prison experience and they also give free tickets to women with lived prison experience so that they are making a really conscious effort to be an accessible open space for those women and give them a platform to not just share their stories but to empower them to give back to the community in ways that they have been disempowered when they've been incarcerated. So programs that allow them to give back their culture and like teach, you know, youth people who are in youth justice um, systems and things like that to just, yeah, create a community in, in not only 
academics or, or journalists or people like that, although they were also present at the conference, but to definitely just give that basis. I think the idea of abolition is so radical and so amazing. I mean, when I first read Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis, who was present at the conference, really, really amazing. She's come to every single one since the very first 18 years ago. Um, you know, it's just that idea of the function of prisons and the demographic of people who are incarcerated are not actively reflective of um, this idea of morality and crime and good and bad people. Um, we just find that overwhelmingly poor people are criminalised and end up in prison for the fact of being poor and having to survive uh, under capitalism and that's what puts people in prison. It's not about being a bad person and doing crimes. Um, it's more about where you've been born and how, how you grew up and what opportunities you were given in your life. And in that way, a lot of women who, I think, just from what I heard, a lot of people with uh, homelessness issues and housing issues, uh, people with drug and alcohol addiction or, um, you know, issues with substance. And also just people who didn't have the kind of supportive family life that um, could have you know, given them all the opportunities, like a lot of them came from abusive families, say their parents, um, so just a lot of family and sexual violence involved in a lot of these women's lives. And to think that those things are what get you in prison, it's just so completely unjust and disgusting that that's why we think about prisons serving no other function than for the state to criminalise poor people. So, you know, and overwhelmingly Indigenous people, because that's how racial capitalism is working in our country. So to say that they're completely obsolete, they serve no function, there's no point in having them, we should just shut them all down and let everybody out. You know, it's a really radical idea, but it's based in this, you know, understanding of sociology and that people who are in prison are not criminals, they've done nothing wrong a lot of the time. It's society that has put that and imposed that on them on the basis that they're working class or come from a, you know, a, fort, a sort of family violence background and all those different things, yeah. There's a heap in there I'd like to kind of tease out both um, how you understand it, but also if we could get some picture of how that was discussed. So, look, I, I noticed um, in the notes there that you wrote, there was a lot of um, female Indigenous speakers in particular and a framework built around notions of colonisation, settler state, decolonisation was used to understand the question of prisons. Can you tell us a little bit about... The, the kind of flavour that analysis had at the conference? Yeah, I mean, there were so many just amazing Indigenous women that came to this conference and made it exactly what it needed to be. Um, the very first panel uh, was called First Nations Women, or like, why, why abolition for First Nations women? Like, it's really, really important to remember that the prison system definitely is built to sustain capitalism, but as Angela Davis said in her speech, the very first capital accumulation that happened in this country was on slavery, on land, you know, land grabs and, and dispossession of indigenous people, and um, also taking children away. So the way that child protection systems interact, you know, the stolen generation taking away children, um, putting people onto missions. Uh, using them as indentured labour and blackbirding, so in Queensland with the sugar trade, the blackbirding of South Sea Islander people. Um, all of these interlocking carceral systems had, you know, that was their genesis, that was where they began in this country. And now we see it's the prison industrial complex, but it's, you know, its formation was colonialism and the way that 
the colonial regime wanted to destroy Indigenous people and commit genocide and completely erase them from the planet. And I think what's amazing is that we really proved, you know, with this, with these panels and with these all these speakers, was that they've survived and they're still here and they're still fighting and leading. And no other culture could have done that. You know, nobody else could have done that. It's them that's that's continued their resistance and given all of this new language, um, you know, like abolition and anti-racism and, you know, all these words, context for us to really use in our daily lives to remember that the Indigenous people of, you know, so-called Australia were the first people to suffer any kind of carceral system in this country. And then obviously it was built on a penal colony, so the way that that history also interacts with working class people and people who were deemed criminals and were dumped on this continent by the British. Mm. How is that, like, it's quite shocking, like, just when you look at the, the stats of the proportion of people that are Indigenous that are incarcerated. How is that explained from, like, a, the prison abolitionist perspective? Like, how, what's the understanding of why that happens and how does it play out? I think every part of the criminal justice system is deeply racist, so that's probably how it's explained. Every single avenue, whether it's police literally just targeting black people on the street, um, whether it's people who are more likely to commit so-called crimes um, because they are living in poverty, because they have been taken away from any sense of their identity and who they could be and also any material wealth that they might have. So whether that's housing, education, employment, all of that has been taken away from them uh, as Indigenous people. Uh, to the justice system that, you know, probably literally based on your skin colour alone would decide how many years you're going to get and what your sentence is going to be and whether you're likely to be believed if you're a victim um, of domestic violence and say that you've, you've assaulted or reacted against your perpetrator and you know what other kind of women that are believed in that situation. It's probably more white women, it's probably less black women. Um, so from all of those institutions that touch the criminal justice system, although I learned a new way to say that, which is the criminal legal system because there's no justice in it. Um, that was from Derica, one of the lawyers um, who presented a workshop. And so looking at all of those different systems, from the cops to the courts to the you know, way that people have access to housing and health and education and, and employment, all of those things are touched deeply by racism. Uh, and there is, this system is working. It was designed to do this to people. It was designed to take people's children away. It was designed to delegitimize any sense of sovereignty in this country. And so it's all slighted in a racist way against Indigenous people. And I think that's how we come to the point of framing abolition from a First Nations um, stronghold and saying that this is this is one of the first things that you've got to come to when you come to abolition is that it, it is based in anti-racism and it's got to be based in sovereignty, yeah. And was there much, how did that analysis go down at the conference? Is that something that was controversial or was everyone behind that? No, everybody was 100%, 100% uh, in line with that. Everybody was supportive. Um, a lot of people in the crowd really appreciated like having these new levels of understanding and like being able to see these new perspectives, I think, is so important just by listening. Um, and I think, obviously, maybe as <laughs> settler people, we don't listen enough. Um, so, you know, to, to be able to hear all these stories and get all these perspectives 
is really, really a fundamental part of confronting your settler privilege and the fact that, you know, we probably never had family who are incarcerated. Um, and obviously, it's very relevant to new groups who are being incarcerated. So, for example, um, African Australians and the Sudanese population had a big um, proportion of representation of people who came to the conference for that because their communities are now going through the exact same thing that Indigenous people have been going through for 240 years, right? So they're really interested in seeing these how this is playing out in their own community and learning from how um, strategies of like black power and stuff to, to help this in their own community so they don't get criminalised as well, or so that they can fight back against that criminalisation. So, yeah. yeah. It's a really fascinating kind of point of alliance. I think um, very much from the sidelines. I think I've been seeing some kind of contours of increasing uh, solidarity and alliance between recent migrants from African countries and Indigenous people in Australia and like a, a new language almost being developed about how to understand where those oppressions link and things like that. So it's really fascinating to kind of hear that at, at the conference. Um, there was also quite, from your notes, like really detailed workshops about practical programs. And like that sets off a lot in my head, you know, so I'm kind of interested in both how you saw like the overall analysis and the practical kind of NGO programs fitting together. And you know, there's a lot of debate about the tensions between words like activism and NGOs and transformation and reform. Did those kind of debates also play out positively or negatively? How do people kind of really grab all those things? And not being just kind of like stupidly ultra about it. Yeah, so there was a lot of discussion around um, whether these kinds of more reformist um, programs or platforms were were valid and legitimate. Um, there were a lot of lawyers who were there at the conference presenting their papers, uh, presenting their work that they've done to look at um, you know diversionary programs and schemes away from the court system and away from prison. Um, people who work with um, a lot of maybe immigrants who had their visas taken away due to criminal um, charges against them. One of the workshop presenters was Tanusha Sridharan and um, she's a lawyer and she was looking at how all of these criminal charges that used to just, you know, you serve your time and then you'd come out, what's happening now is they're actually funneling people directly into immigration detention and deporting them on the basis that they're not allowed to be in the Australian community anymore because they're criminals, you know, quote unquote. So. I think that they all have a place in the grand scheme of like pushing forwards towards abolition. Obviously, you know, one-on-one -on -one personal legal advice is not going to abolish prisons, um, but they're part of a larger structure. So I think they fit in really well. But obviously, you know, there was people like activist Vicky Roach who were saying, you know, armed revolution and struggle is the quickest way to get ourselves out of here. Or Angela Davis talking about, you know, we start with women's prisons and we end up with revolution and that we need to change the world. You know, they're definitely one side of it. And then there's also all of these, you know, community services and programs that are trying to push for the change that we can get right now. Um, and I think that they're definitely all part of the bigger picture and, and going towards the same direction. But obviously, if you did you know work in a community service that was just doing sort of like very one-on-one -on -one support for diversionary aid programs for you know say indigenous youth um, maybe if you went to this conference and you heard these revolutionary arguments you could be more open to looking at stronger ways of advocating or different ways of doing actual organizing um, I feel like sometimes 
Uh, there's a lot of theory floating around. There's a lot of academics that were also presenting at the conferences. Um, but when we talk about activism and we talk about how are we campaigning, how what are we lobbying, what are we doing actually in terms of our organising work, building relationships with people to create policy change and to create all these other things. Um, obviously, it would be great if all of these different lawyers and academics could learn from that and, and take those more radical ideas on board. Not to say that everybody is going to be like an armed revolutionary, but, you know, we can dream. Maybe they will be, right? <laughs> if you're not convinced by Angela Davis's speech, I'm not sure what's going to convince you. <laughs> yeah. I think there was a great representation of people from Aotearoa who came to the conference, which was awesome. So People Against Prisons Aotearoa, they came across in a contingent, um, also with an academic, Tracy, uh, Tracy McIntosh, I believe. Um, you can double check that name in the conference if you like. Um, and they had a presentation that they did, a workshop that they did, but they were also just, you know, obviously learning and informing their own campaign. And they've been doing such amazing work for so long. Um, so PAPA, they just recently got, um, were very influential in getting police um, officers in Pride, in um, like the Pride March in Auckland to not be able to march in uniform. Um, they've been obviously doing like prison support, so writing letters and advocating for people inside prisons for a really long time. Um, and they've just, were such a great presence. I think um, the Maori presence at this conference was super important because you see so much parallel in the colonialism and the dispossession and all of this intergenerational trauma um, playing out exactly the same. Uh, a lot of people, I think, struggle to contemplate how these systems are literally everywhere in every colonial country. So that's, you know, whether it's Aotearoa, whether it's Turtle Island, whether it's, you know, our continent here, so much parallel, so many similarities. Um, and that is a space for great solidarity. So it was really amazing to um, have all of these academics and, and people from Aotearoa to come to the conference and really just, you know, share what they have to share. And um, I think there's just this one quote that I would really like to share um, from that academic Tracy McIntosh. So she's from the University of Auckland and she was talking about dispossession and she said, you know, the loss uh, and people who don't know where they're from is very common in prison. Your descent lines and your place to give yourself grounding, rock and anchor. You know, we tether ourselves during storms of confusion and crisis to identity and that's totally taken away from you in prison. Um, and she said, you are your papa, which is, you know, your lineage and your ancestors and it's never lost. You are not less than, you are not seeking, you are savouring it and you're already seated at that table. So I think there's some really beautiful ways of thinking about diaspora, you know, even personally as a second generation immigrant, thinking about dispossession um, of indigenous people and that lineage that, you know, it's not lost from you. And often there were a lot of stories of women that found reclaiming their cultural identity and getting back to their roots um, was so helpful in grounding them so that they could get through prison and get out and help other people. So that was a really beautiful part of the conference as well. Yeah, I find that so difficult. Like, really interesting, but so difficult. Like, I, I get, I, it was really interesting reading your notes because <laughs> I was. Amazing. You know, if you can type at ninety words per minute, what what else are you going to do except transcribe basically the entire conference for everybody who couldn't come? So. <laughs> I, I think they should be published, right? Like, I, but I, I must admit, like, I, I, like, I read that quote, and I'm so allergic to notions of identity. I guess. Oh, interesting. You know, like I like it. Like I find it all like really. I think allergic. 
And so I really like, um, I'm really interested because I don't really want to hear too much from me, but how you see like this concept of identity and lost identity and reclaiming identity that was really present in so many of the presentations, like why it's so important to these struggles and, and what potential does it contain? Yeah, well, um, you know, there was a person who shared their story who had lived prison experience from Aotearoa and they were Maori and they were talking about all of the trauma that they received, all of the abuse that they received in their family life and how that was perpetuated onto their children and it just, you know, every every part of their life was really damaged Um, and the academic from Aotearoa was saying that you saw the the dispossession of that family five generations back. Five generations back when when colonialism came to Aotearoa, that's when all of that pain and all of that suffering started. And then five generations later, you can still see it, even into this person's, you know, children, you can see it. And, And their grandchildren, it just keeps going. And that intergenerational trauma is something that cannot be healed I think, personally, without that recognition of culture, the importance of these identities and languages and, you know, reclaiming Indigenous identities and, and getting back into sovereignty. And, you know, the person who had been through all of that prison experience had said, you know, it's, it was really painful for her to draw a line between white and person of colour and realise that that was the basis of all of that trauma and pain. And it's not a comfortable feeling. It's not. Ha- no one wants to turn around and go, oh, the reason for my whole life being fucked up is literally just because of the colour of my skin and why people don't want to experience that and confront it. And, you know, it was also painful for her. She didn't want to have to face the truth of why, why her life had been so derailed by this stupid idea of racism, you know, by something so ridiculous. But that is what the system is built on. So to, to me, there's no way of understanding re-empowerment programs and, and, and reconnecting Indigenous people to their land and their culture and their community. There, there is no abolition without that because that is where it started. So if you have the beginning being the dispossession, well, then the healing is the repossession. So I think it's really great that we can have that, hold that uncomfortableness and sit with it and say, yes, it is painful. Yes, it is wrong. Yes, it makes no sense. You know, yes, it is brutalizing and traumatizing and horrible and people have died and people's children were taken away and suicide attempts happened and all of this stuff happened. And we just have to confront it. And, you know, <laughs> if you're allergic to identity for, your, for yourself, I think that's totally valid. Nobody has to force you to identify any way you don't want to as an individual. But if we can look at these structures more broadly, how do we get um, younger children who are going to be having contact with this criminal legal system, how do we get them to understand? Well, culture and identity is a great place to start. And um, there was one woman who had lived prison experience and she said her daughter had come into contact with the court system. And at the court system, the main thing that changed the magistrate's mind was Melanie, the poet who who performed a lot at the conference, was her poem, um, Two Strikes. And the two strikes were being Indigenous and being a woman. And that that poem, when presented to the magistrate and when presented to her daughter, really gave them this lens to understand, you know, patriarchy and racism and colonialism and 
to recognise how those systems have impacted this 12-year-old girl's life who is now, you know, at threat of going into detention. And that, that poem changed the magistrate's mind and that he didn't put her in detention because of that. Um, and it also empowered her because, you know, there's a part in the poem where it goes, you know, sure, it's two strikes, but it also makes me a double threat. And so as a 12-year-old Indigenous girl, like, she could really take power from that and go, I'm not going to let those things be two strikes against me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a double threat. So it worked out, you know, really importantly in that case to have that poem and to have that experience and connection to, to culture and Aboriginal, Aboriginality. So, you know, that's just another example of how beautiful it can be. Uh, and how important it can be. Excellent. Um, so it wasn't just a conference, there was also actions that were attached to it as well. Could just you, one. Just one, okay, action. Yes. Um, can you tell us about that, how, what that action was and how it connected to the conference? Yeah, so throughout the conference, like a lot of people were crying. <laughs> we were all really messed up, like it was deep, you know. I'm almost getting emotionally like trying to recall it because it was, it was really intense. There was a lot of anger, there was a lot of sadness, there was a lot of pain. Uh, even as someone who's never experienced any of this, just as an empathetic human being, like just as compassion, like seeing somebody else up there, you know, relating their story. And, and that is so emotionally impactive. Like after Angela Davis's speech, um, there was an Indigenous um, person who just came to the front and said, you know, if you're feeling empowered after this and you feel like you want to do something about this, um, we're just going to go down to police headquarters, which was just across the road where they were locking up uh, Indigenous girls there, a lot of Indigenous girls, but girls in general on remand are taken to that watch house, to the police headquarters. We're just going to walk down there and we're going to put ochre all over their um, headquarters because, you know, the ochre was symbolising, you know, the blood of Indigenous people that is on their hands. Um, and it was actually also um, suggested by the family of David Dungay Hill Jr. And that family, they live out in Ipswich and we're trying to support them through the coronial inquest of, of their son, who was a death in custody. Um, so we took uh, ourselves to the streets and we marched up to police headquarters. We went inside, we occupied the space and we were chanting, you know, say their name. And we were saying all of the names of people in custody, you know, whether it was David York or whether it was David Dungay Hill Jr., whether it was, um, you know, Wayne Feller Morrison, a lot of lot of people, Ms. Do, we were just chanting their names and letting it be known to the police that we haven't forgotten them and we were going to do something about it. So we got the ochre out. Everybody who wanted to um, put like a handprint on the on the glass, uh, it was obviously led by Mob, a really really amazing group of young people um, who led us, you know, as First Nations Mob and. It was really great, and Angela Davis joined us outside the headquarters, uh, did a bit of marching. Um, I just think it was a really great way to end that part of the day and just try and put something positive from all of these painful stories that we'd been hearing and that we did not forget them and that we were going to keep fighting for them and um, send a message to the cops that we're watching them. Um, because you know police brutality and the treatment of indigenous people even just in Brisbane is is really horrific like the cops target a lot of indigenous youth uh, pick them up all the time for no reason um, there were some kids from the watch house who were saying they'd get pulled up by the cops and they'd get searched for no reason and then if they had a phone on them the cops would say oh you stole it because a black kid can't have their own phone because that's how racist they are. So they take the kids down, they use any excuse to take kids down to the station, even if there was just having a phone on them. I mean, ridiculous, completely ridiculous. So, yeah, that was a really good action and an important way to manifest everything that we were talking about at the conference into a real political action. 
uh, it's impossible to overemphasize, I guess, as well, how fatal a place like a watch house can be for young Indigenous people in Australia. You know that, like when um, you know Black Lives Matters appeared in the United States, you know there's a lot of that language began to kind of come into Australia, and you know, the focus was on being shot in the street. But in Australia, they're going to run you over, beat you up, and kill you in the back of the paddy van. You know, there's a particular kind of link with incarceration and brutality you know, that is focused on Indigenous people, where it's not, it's it's the most dangerous place for young Indigenous people to be, to be arrested. Yeah, and even with the case of Ms Du, it was actually also health staff, people at the hospitals, who discriminated against her and thought that she was going through withdrawal or faking it because of what the cops had said. So we see even health professionals like nurses and doctors are getting drawn into this racist system where they're, they're killing Indigenous people. So... Um, all sorts of institutions will interact with people in a way that ends up with mob being, you know, dead in the back of a, whether it's in the back of a police wagon or whether it's in a lockup in on remand or whether it's in prison. You know, all these spaces are incredibly dangerous spaces, and it's also even in the street when we do actions like this. So my experience was at the action, this cop walked past straight past me, didn't even give me a look, uh, and just locked eyes with this African girl. And she kept chanting, because we were all chanting, and she made eye contact with him, and he just got right up in her face like he was about to arrest her and fucking start bashing her. So I kind of, like, stepped in between them, and I was just like, look to the cop, like, you don't need to do this, keep walking. She didn't do anything. She was doing exactly what all of us were doing. We're just here, we're chanting, and we're, and we're leaving in a minute, so you just keep walking, move along. Um, and he did. He did leave her alone, but you could just see him walk down this row of protesters and stop right at the black girl and and he was about to arrest her or or beat her and that was just in our action so even in those situations we have to be so vigilant so careful that our comrades and our our community are safe uh, and that we're being got our eyes open waiting for them to get snatched by the cops basically because that's what happens yeah at the conference like was there a sense of how you connect like from what is this strikingly radical demand to a notion of strategy? You know, what, like, did you have a sense of like, okay, after this conference, this is the next set of steps that are needed? Yeah, it was a lot to take in. So I don't know if there was one or two sets of steps that we were, you know, going to go out, but there is so much work already being done. Um, so, you know, Follow Sisters Inside, they've always got programs going um, that they need volunteers for and there's obviously also things you can do, whether it's writing, you know, being a pen pal to people in prison, whether it's supporting other organisations that are already doing good work. Um, I feel like there were a lot of opportunities for us, you know, whether it's following people against prisons Aotearoa and like going and doing the work that they're doing as well and trying to emulate that. Um, there's so much that can be done and it, it really was an imagination. So it was imagining all of the things that we wanted to happen and, and there were the practical steps to get there. Um, so I do think that having gone to the conference, I definitely feel like I know what I'm going to be doing and what I really want to focus on. And I also think there was such an abundance of, there was such an abundance of like restorative justice practices and different ways of relating to each other and thinking about abuse and abusers and perpetrators not in a way where we're trying to beget them with violence and and punish them but how can we actually rehabilitate people so I guess for me thinking about community accountability and all these Aboriginal women who had experienced a lot of domestic violence 
You know, how do we deal with that problem without prisons? That's a big question. How do we deal with murderers without prisons? Because that's what we're talking about. And so these are the confronting questions that we really had to think through, okay, well, what other restorative justice practices we could put in our community? How can we use the strength of a collective and a community to collectively hold people accountable um, and enforce better standards of relating with each other? How can we heal that harm without resorting to something like isolating someone, you know? If they need, you know, a lot of people who are in prison need mental health uh, care. Like, they need the proper medicine. They need these diagnoses. They need actual therapy. They need support. Um, and they need to know that the community is not going to stand by while they are perpetrating and being abusive. So these kind of conversations, like this sort of stuff, is where it really gets down to the difficult part of abolishing prisons. What, what do we replace it with? And we do have to replace it with something. And that was definitely evident in a lot of the workshops as well. Could you actually talk some more about that? Because I, yeah. I, 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 all of those points are like... <laughs> because I think about, OK, that sounds fantastic, right? But do I even live in a community? You know, like what what level does community have to be at? You know, I, I know some of my neighbours and I'm involved in my community group and I think we can organise a street festival, but I'm not sure like tomorrow we could organise a restorative justice program. You know, like what, you know, in terms of the, what you think and the discussion at the, con- at the conference, what does that really substantially flesh on the bones? What would it require? Who would we have to be so we wouldn't need prisons? Well, I did go to the restorative justice workshop that was run at the um, at the conference, and it was run by an academic. I do forget his name, but he was really great, and he actually went through, you know, all the different strategies that you can use for restorative justice. And I think the first place it has to start at is that the perpetrator has to agree that they've done something wrong, and that's usually a really difficult place to start from. But that is the place you have to start from. And to me, the way that I understood getting to that place was that nobody's reputation was going to be hinged purely on, like, you know, a lot of people deny what they've done and they deny it and they deny it and they never agree that they've perpetrated a crime or or an abuse or something like that because of the stakes that are, you know, because there are so much at stake. So trying to get to a place where admitting that you've done something wrong and saying sorry and apologising isn't such a huge loss of face, but that actually the community is going to stay there to support someone through that. Um, But also that if they refuse, if they refuse to really apologise and do the work that's required, that there will be consequences. So using the consequences of a group on an individual. So So it's not the absence of punishment. No, no, it's not the absence of punishment, but it is, it's the absence of a violent punishment. It's not to say that there's no consequences, that you will have to do something to heal the person that you've hurt, but that we're using the group to do that instead of a cell. We're using human connection and other people to do that instead of bars and instead of isolation and instead of disconnection. So, you know, for example... If somebody has had committed an assault on another person, uh, it would be that everybody in the community would know that that had happened and it would, it would be an alert, that everybody would be allowed to have an opinion on it too, that we could all gather together and we could share like how that assault has hurt everybody in the community, not just one person, um, and the trust that's been broken 
and the and the faith that needs to be rebuilt with that person in order to let them back into the spaces that they used to have and also confronting power dynamics so taking away any positions of power that they have over others you know they shouldn't be allowed to have any major decision making in the community they shouldn't be allowed to have um, one-on-one time with individuals like young women or children. You know, it's about changing that power dynamic so that these things don't happen again until that person can be trusted and has gone through the proper therapy and rehabilitation and talking through. And and um, they were, like they um, the person running the workshop cited this thing called the Sycamore Project, which is actually people who are perpetrators and victims not even related to each other, like people who'd assaulted other people. Uh, victims from completely separate crimes, completely separate occurrences coming together and doing this work anyway because it's still beneficial. Even if it's not to the person that you've harmed, it's still beneficial for an abuser to go through this process of admitting they've done something wrong and changing and saying sorry and reforming and that it's possible. Um, So, yeah, for me, I think it does start with a strong community. So everybody is naturally already in communities, whether it's a physical space like your neighbourhood or whether it's the punk scene where everybody, you know, goes to gigs together or whether it's um, the people that you organise with in your, you know, socialist group or whatever. So everybody is already in a community. It's about whether all of those people in the community can agree to a set of treating each other a certain way and with respect and that if somebody violates that, they will be held accountable by the entire group. And that's the point. A victim cannot hold a perpetrator accountable by themselves. It's not going to work. They have to be persuaded by a large group of people that they have valuable relationships with to change and to be different. And so it's only through the strength of those relationships that you'll really get a proper restorative justice occurrence happening from what I understood of the workshop. Yeah. Oh, and there's a really good book called um, The Revolution Starts at Home, which goes into a lot of different strategies about community accountability. So you can go read that if you're interested. Thanks. So obviously we can't summarise the entire conference. Uh, What else do we need to talk about coming from there you think is really important? Um, I think... I would just like have some points from Angela, Angela Davis's speech that were really amazing. Um, so she was one of the speakers that made a really important point to talk about global capitalism and the way that the prison industrial complex is functioning in our country. So the fact that prison labor is actually used as free labor to like produce things. Um, this happens, you know, also in the United States. Um, the fact that it's the continuation of colonialism and slavery to keep, you know, 2% of our population are Indigenous, except 30% behind bars. So they're actually doing something. They're disenfranchising a group that have power and threat to take and challenge the state. Um, She talked about abolition feminism as well. So looking at how feminism and women who are encouraging this carceral mentality encouraging yeah we should lock people up we should throw them away like a discarding kind of feminism a feminism that doesn't think holistically about humans because you know if you throw someone away if you disappear someone into a prison that problem that they've created doesn't go away it doesn't go anywhere so did that mean there was some kind of interrelationship with like a me too conversation happening here how did that play out and and white feminism in particular so abolition feminism as opposed to white feminism white liberal feminism in which you know people are really focused on these individual uh you know perpetrators instead of a larger structural conversation and and also about 
um, the gender policing and the gender binary that is instituted into prisons. So if you're not a prison abolitionist, then what do you do you think that trans people who are incarcerated should continue to be policed and misgendered and put into the wrong prison. You know, it's this kind of idea that prisons themselves perpetuate patriarchy and they perpetuate capitalism. So everything is interrelated. I think that was a lot of what Angela Davis was talking about. And she also really railed against these ideas of like diversity, inclusion, reconciliation as the way forward for anti-racism. So those kinds of concepts, like she said, we don't want to replace white cis straight men in the top of the hierarchy. We don't want their power. We don't want to be them. We don't want to replicate their world. So it's actually striving towards this radical transformation um, and not aspiring to take their place, not aspiring to assimilate into their system, but rather to create something entirely new. And that's why abolition is so radical. And that's why it's so incredible because it's taking all of these colonial, carceral, punitive, you know, patriarchal, gender binary, transphobic systems and saying none of that is going to be present in the society that we want. And we reject all of it. So that was really, really powerful. Um, And imagining what it would be like to feel safe without resorting to violence. Feeling safe without needing to have the state police force and all these violence constructs of prison and all of that, being safe without all of that, I think was really powerful to just imagine being safe and not having all of those things in our lives. And it was a really beautiful picture, actually. So, yeah. Because yeah, we have all the guns and bars and we don't feel safe. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't make... In fact, it's some, it makes some people even more unsafe to the point that they die. So definitely not safe. And, and violence doesn't, doesn't create safety. It never will. Well, thanks, Bridget. I'm going to have to run. I've, I've got to catch a train home. Uh, is there anything you'd like us to finish talking about? Um, just that everybody should follow Sisters Inside and just keep supporting their work. And if you want to make it to the next conference, you know, start saving your pennies <laughs> um, or help organise, volunteer with them, you know, anything that you can do and, and have these conversations and take this out. And, you know, if you want those notes, actually, no, don't worry about the notes because Sisters Inside is going to be releasing the audio and the video footage from their conference in the new year. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Bridget. I hope you enjoy the rest of the afternoon. Uh, You've been listening to Living the Dream. You, I'm Dave. You can follow me on Twitter at with Sober Senses. Bridget, do you have some social media presence you want to advertise? Yeah, I mean, like, you can follow me on Twitter at Fight Loudly, and I'm Bridget Harrelau on a bunch of different, like, news sites, like SBS and Guardian, like, Feminist Writers Festival or whatever. So if you want to, like, read some stuff that I've written, you can go do that. <laughs> you should do that. All right. Enjoy your afternoon. Bye. And the mice were squealing in my prison cell And that old triangle with jingle jangle All along the banks of the Royal And that old
Jingle, bloody jingle. 